Hello, and welcome to the Navicast podcast, the one true chapter by chapter podcast going through a song place to fire one chapter a week. I'm one of your hosts, Jeff, better known as Britta B. Fish. And I'm your other host, Emmett, better known as Poor Quentin. And welcome to the 143rd episode of the Nauticast titled Portrait of a Lady on Fire. <laughs> Great title. An analysis of a Clash of Kings Sansa 7 in which Sansa runs back to her room to find Sander, who begs a song from the fair maiden while putting a knife to her throat. Is that, is that romance or is that horror or tragedy? Which one is it? What genre? Yes, the answer is yes. I know I should be feeling sorry for Sansa, but really the person I feel sorry for is Jeff, because this is the end of the Battle of Blackwater, and then we gotta go back to covering things other than everyone trying to kill everyone. What's even the point? I don't know. I don't know either. I mean, like... Right? There's plenty of great chapters at the end of Clash of Kings, don't get me wrong, but if George had just concluded the book here... I would have been totally satisfied with it. You know, just leave Theon and John like on cliffhangers and, you know, just <laughs> and, and here. That's it. This, this is a Clash of Kings right here. So, as always, this episode is brought to you by our Not a Small Council, our Hand of the King, Wolfman Zack, Grand Maester Tim Bob, Troubleshooter of Systems and Designer of Circuit Boards, Lord Commander of the Kingsguard, Mark N., Lord Travis, Master of Ships and War of the Waves, Captain of the War Galley, Nightwolf, the ship that stalks the seven seas, and Wheeler of the Valyrian Steel, Trident Summoner, the blade that brings the deep ones, Sir Keith J., Master of Whispers, Lord Philip the Merciful, Master of Laws, Archmaester Jume, Heel of the Lesser Poxes, Ragged Michael, Ward the North, Nelson Hammer, Prince of Dragonscone, Scarlet the Other Red Woman, and Mistress of Whispers, Lord Micah, the Quilled Lion, War of the West, Herald the Golden Tooth, Master the Banefort, and the Kraken's Bane. Lord James, the gem that was promised, the high bearded priest, Lord Jake assisted to the hand of the king, Lady Zena Valyrian, Sir Jack, Lord of Sir Arthur Dane, and Prince Rhaegar Targaryen's Sad Prophecy Boys Club, His Grace's High Inquisitor, Sir Frank B., Sir Jasper the Cruel, the King's Justice, Lawrence, Prince of Dorm, Kelly, Ward the East Mistress of Old Bay of Crabs, Stephen the Steadfast, Master of Hounds, the Blue Winter Rose, Knight of Highgarden, Lady Stephanie, Lord Anamas, Lord Carlos, Lord Andrew the Restless, the Priest of the Drowned God, Sir Sorcedelica, Low Energy Dent, True Master the Bainfort and true master of coin, Laura Pension for Nostalgia, Queer Alex, Beyonce's favorite stain, Ambassador of Chromatica, Rainbow Commander of the Thades and Gentle Thems, Haldover, the Waiter for Tewile, A.A. Braun, Dampair, Prophet of the Forsaken, and High Priest of Euron Crozai, Lieutenant Glenn, Lord of H-Town, Veneris of House Gregorian, the First for Dame, Princess of Dragonstone, Mistress of Art, The Overworked, Queen of the Pencils, The Eraser in the First Draft, Queen of Monochrome, Devotee the Great, Game of Thrones, Portress of the Realm, Lady Realist of Seven Kingdoms, Blender Paints, Maker of Drawings, and the Michelangelo of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Lord Adam T, Lady Alexander of Tarth, Sir Christoph Logos, Bloody Scorpion of the Red Field, Defender of the Letter of Kin and the Wolverine of House Corgoyle, Lady Elizabeth, Mistress of Horse, Face, Lesbians, Sir Josh Snow, Bastard Bounty Hunter of the North, Surveyor, Chief of Parties in the Frozen Wastes, Lord Peter, The Dead Shepherd Reborn, Preacher of the Poor Fellows, Marshal Harrison, Absent Shipwrecked in the Jade Sea, Grave Rob Stark, The Cadaver King, and Horror of Harrenhal, Olaf, Proponent of Establishing a Feudal, Pseudo-Democratic System of, count- of Great Councils, wherein every count votes, Sir Tim, the knight who was guided by voices. Lord Nick, Thucydides, Lord of Plagues. Sir Jack, Lord of Sir Arthur Dane and Prince Breakar Targaryen, Sad Prophecy Boys Club. Lady Allen, Lady Anna, the lovely Castellan. Pat Ironwood, the Blood Royal and Guardian of the Boneway. Lord Charles Tyrell of Highgarden, Lord Paramount of the Mander, Defender of the Marches, High Marshal of the Reach, Warder in the South, and the Heir of House Tyrell. 
Luke, Lord of Lone Leaf and the Pillar of Autumn, Master of Zorse, Joe Snow, King of the Metro North and Protector of the Tri-State, Squire Matt S, Future Matt S, the one who will bring balance to the kingdoms, B-Word, Queen Beyond the Wall, Lord Kyle, Lord Samuel Seaworth, Sir Max, Lord Commander of the Constitutional Guard, Blackberry the Bold, Champion of the Feel Good Times, Lady Ivory Dane, Aspiring Noble Author in the Seven Kingdoms, Lady of Starfall, Warners of the South, and the Patron of Free Wheeling Bisexuals, Lady Jamisa, she who, she who suggests that coconuts migrate, and Lord Christoph of Arendelle, Official Ice Master and Deliverer, the Valiant Pungent Reindeer King, Keeper of Feisty Pants, and Prince Consort to his Ginger Sweet Love Queen, Anna. Thank you to all of our small counselors. Thank you, counselors, as always. And our spoiler warning, as we say in every episode, we'll potentially be talking about all published books. That is the five novels, three Dunkin' Devils, histories, interviews, the Wins Winner sample chapters, as well as Game of Thrones TV show. Anything and everything. Our question this week comes from Lord Travis, our master of ships and merchant of the waves, who will be taking a leave of absence from the small council to sail to the ends of the earth aboard the War Galley Nightwolf. We all believe that Bran will be even more essential in Winds and Dream, and may have a vital role not only in stopping the others, but in revealing Jon's true heritage and helping to mend Westeros following the Second War for the Dawn. The show provided two general reasons for Jon murdering Danny. She was pushing for war and liberation without end, and her actions could potentially lead to ensnaring and destroying both the North and House Stark. The show framed antagonism more between Sansa and Danny, which I'm sure will occur in some fashion. Northern independence and John's claim were expressed through Sansa, but do you think there's any potential for Danny Bran conflict towards the end of the series that could force John's hand? Or do you think, like in the show, King Bran is a twist at the end? So what do you think about that, Jeff, in terms of the, the motivation for John turning on Danny? I think the show played it pretty straightforward in that the, the conflict centered over whether over John's fear that Daenerys was going to hurt his his sisters. Couple that, of course, along with King's Landing being destroyed and Tyrion Lannister sort of convincing John to, to follow through on, on killing Danny. I do wonder whether there's like a Danny brand conflict in, in terms of like the magic side too, because Danny is also the receiver of vision. She has Quaith that is her size or magic mentor. These are similar things to 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 Bran Stark, who has Bloodraven as a, as a mentor and has magical visions as well. I don't really foresee Bran getting into, like, direct conniving political conflict with people. Maybe more when he was going to be a little older. But I think Bran is going to uh, take advantage of circumstance to a achieve his political ends. And I think will, I think, be filling a vacuum that others have made for him. I think maybe in part just to keep, you know, his, his reputation kind of spotless if he's not the one who killed Danny or even encouraged John to kill Danny, then he can take the throne. What did Tywin say about Robert? He he wanted the throne, but he didn't want to do the killing yes. that was involved. Maybe in Brandon, in a less cowardly and more calculated way, will will want the same thing. He'll 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 foresee his destiny, he'll see it as fated, but he also doesn't want to be the one to take out his predecessor, especially when she's beloved by so many people. So thank you so much to Lord Travis for the question and happy voyage. Bring back that horizon. If you'd like to ask us questions, we answer here on the Nauticast podcast. You're welcome to become a Sworn Sword or higher-level patron over at patreon.com slash A-S-O-I-A-F, where you can also sign up at various levels to get show notes, access to the Nauticast Slack, weekly minisodes, and bonus episodes. Absolutely. And our most recent bonus episode is actually out now. Surprise! It's our retrospective analysis of the Game of Thrones prologue. So that's out now for small counselors as we're recording this episode. And it will be actually out in, in actual practice for all poor fellow and above patrons if you're listening on the general release day. So again, head on over and listen as a patron or sign up and listen as a patron over to patreon.com forward slash Nauticast A-S-O-I-A-F. But enough about Patreon. When we last checked in with Sansa... Uh, 
decade ago. That is, I think, last week, right? She had been Cersei's captive audience in Mager's Holdfast. Let's find out what happens when she gains a small amount of agency-ish in this synopsis of A Clash of Kings, Sansa 7. When Sir Lancel Lannister told the queen that the battle was lost, she turned her empty wine cup in her hands and said, Tell my brother, sir. Her voice was distant as if the news was of no great interest to her. Sir Lancel Lannister, covered in blood from a wound under his arm that had sent some of the people in Cersei's court screaming, says that Tyrion is probably dead. Mandamore also dead. Why the fuck did Cersei order Joffrey back? Everyone starts deserting after that. They had a fighting chance before that, though. Then Osney Kettleblack pushes into the room, saying there's fighting on both sides of the Blackwater. Maybe Stannis' lords are fighting each other? Also, Sandra Clegane is gone. Sir Balin Swan has retreated back into the city. Stannis' army is ramming the King's Gate again. Men are deserting. Mobs are about burning and fighting. Gods be good, Sansa thought. It is happening. Joffrey's lost his head and so have I. She looked for Sir Illyn, but the King's justice was not to be seen. I, I can feel him, though. He's close. I'll not escape him. He'll have my head. Strangely calm, the Queen turned to his brother Osfried. Raise the drawbridge and bar the door. No one enters or leaves Magors without my leave. And the women who went to pray? Yeah, fuck them. The gods will defend them, so says Cersei. Now where's Joffrey? He's at the gatehouse commanding the crossbowmen who are mowing down peasants howling just outside the Red Keep. Lovely. Bring him inside Magors now. No! Lancel was so angry he forgot to keep his voice down. Heads turned toward him them as they shouted. We'll have the mudgate all over again. Let him stay where he is. He's the king. He's my son. Cersei Lannister rose to her feet. You claim to be Lannister as well, cousin. Prove it. Osfried, why are you standing there? Now means today. Osfried rushes back with his brother as some women flee while others call for more wine. Lancel pleads with Cersei to keep Joffrey out in the field. Joffrey's going to die anyways if you pull him back. But Cersei, sweet as always, slaps Lancel in his wound and pushes him out of the way. Lancel nearly faints from the pain as Cersei stares ahead. Sansa thinks that Cersei has forgotten about her, but ill and pain will kill her as an afterthought. A woman cries that the battle is lost and they're lost. Sansa realizes that fear is overwhelming the crowd. She rises to her feet. Don't be afraid, she told them loudly. The queen has raised the drawbridge. This is the safest place in the city. There's thick walls, the moat, the spikes. What's happened? Demanded a woman she knew slightly, the wife of a lesser lordling. What did Ozzy tell her? Is the king hurt? Has the city fallen? Tell us, someone else shouted. One woman asked about her father, another her son. Sansa raised her hands for quiet. Joffrey's come back to the castle. He's not hurt. They're still fighting. That's all I know. They're fighting bravely. The queen will be back soon. The last was a lie, but Sansa had to soothe them. She noticed the fool standing under the galley. Moonboy, make us laugh. And I think that's really good, because that's some queen shit right there, Sansa, and I love it. Moonboy starts doing cartwheels and juggling wine cups. People nervously laugh as Sansa goes over to Lancel. Lancel calls all of this shit madness and how Tyrion was actually right. Sansa orders two serving men to help Lancel. One servant looks and runs, so Sansa and another serving man get Lancel to his feet. She orders the serving man to take Lancel to Maester Franken. Lancel was one of them. Yet somehow, she still cannot bring herself to wish him dead. I'm soft and weak and stupid, just as Joffrey says. I should be killing him not helping him. The tortures in the room burn low, but Cersei doesn't return. Zerdantos gets to the dais and tells Sansa to lock herself in her bedchamber. He'll come get her when the battle is over. But Sansa wonders if it will actually be Dantos who fetches her. Maybe she should beg Dantos to defend her. Nah, he's not brave enough. She'd be killing Dantos in the process. 
It took all the strength she had in her to walk slowly from the queen's ballroom when she wanted so badly to run. When she reached the steps, she did run, up and around until she was breathless and dizzy. One of the guards knocked into her on the stair. A jeweled wine cup and a pair of silver candlesticks spilled out of the crimson cloak he wrapped them in and went clattering down the steps. He hurried after them, paying Sansa no mind once he decided she was not going to try and take his loot. Sansa finds her bedchamber dark. She bars the door and rips back the drapes, only to find the southern sky on fire, with multiple green, orange, red, and yellow fires spreading a fiery light across the sky. The air smelt on fire as well as embers drift around her. Sansa backs away from the window. When I wake, it will be a new day and the sky will be blue again. The fighting will be done and someone will tell me whether I'm to live or die. Lady, she whimpered softly, wondering if she would meet her wolf again when she was dead. Then something stirred behind her, and a hand reached out of the dark and grabbed her wrist. Sansa opened her mouth to scream, but another hand clamped down over her face, smothering her. His fingers were rough and callous and sticky with blood. Little bird, I knew you'd come. The voice was a drunken rasp. Jade light swirls outside of her window, spilling green light into her room. Sansa sees the blood on Sander's face, looking dark as tar, but the light fades and Sander returns to being a hulking darkness with the stained king's guard cloak. If you scream, I'll kill you. Believe that. Sander took his hand from her mouth. Her breath was coming ragged. The hound had a flagon of wine on her bedside table. He took a long pull. Don't you want to ask who's winning the battle, little bird? Who? She said, too frightened to defy him. The hound laughed. I only know it's who's lost. Me. Sansa realizes he's super drunk and he's been sleeping in her bed. Why is he here? She asks what he's lost. Everything. Sander attributes it to Tyrion, thinking he should have killed him years ago. Sansa repeats what she'd heard about Tyrion being dead, but Sander Clegane doesn't want Tyrion dead. He wants to kill him himself, burn him. But maybe the gods will take care of that. As for Sander, though, he's leaving. Where's he going? Sansa asks, trying to struggle from his iron grip. Away from here. Away from the fires. Go out of the iron, get his pose. North, somewhere, anywhere. Sansa says that Sander won't escape, but Sander will use his white cloak to get out of Magors and out of the city, and he's going to kill anyone who attempts to stop him. Okay, that solved. Why is Sander here again? He's here for a song. Song? Sansa doesn't feel like singing with the sky on fire and thousands of people dying, and of course Sander holding a fucking knife to her throat. So she says she can't. Sander is scaring her. That's because everything scares Sansa, according to Sander Clegane. He demands that Sansa look at him. The blood masked the worst of his scars, but his eyes were white and wide and terrifying. The burnt corner of his mouth twitched and twitched again. Sansa could smell him. A stink of sweat and sour wine and stale vomit and over it all, the reek of blood, blood, blood. Sander Clegane claims he'll keep Sansa safe, though. He'll kill anyone who tries to hurt her. He pulls her close to his face, tells her that she can't bear to look at him still. He wants his song, holding the knife to her throat. Sing, little bird. Sing for your little life. Her throat was dry and tight with fear, and every song she had ever known had fled from her mind. Please don't kill me, she wanted to scream. Please don't. She could feel him twisting the point, pushing it into her throat, and she almost closed her eyes again. But then she remembered. It was not the song of Florian and Jonquil, but it was a song. Her voice sounded small and thin and tremulous in her ears. Gentle mother, font of mercy, Save our sons from war, we pray. Stay the swords and stay the arrows. 
let them know a better day. Gentle mothers, strength of women, help our daughters through this fray. Soothe the wrath and tame the fury. Teach us all a kinder way. Sansa had forgotten the other verses. When her voice trailed off, she feared he might kill her. But after a moment, the hound took the blade from her throat, never speaking. Some instinct made her lift her hand and cup his cheek with her fingers. The room was too dark for her to see him, but she could feel the stickiness of the blood and a wetness that was not blood. Little bird, he said once more, his voice raw and harsh as steel on stone. Then he rose from the bed. Sansa heard cloth ripping, followed by the softer sound of retreating footsteps. I, 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 when I was writing the synopsis, I had forgotten how powerful this moment was, and it hits really hard on an emotional level. And I think it's some of George's best writing in, in, in A Song of Ice and Fire proper, so it's well done, George. Sansa gets out of bed a, a long time after Sanity is gone and finds his cloak still on the floor. The sky was darker than it was before, and a cold wind was blowing. Sansa feels cold, too, takes the cloak that Sandra Clegane had left behind and huddles on the floor underneath of it. And then the bells start sounding from every corner of King's Landing. She tosses off the cloak and races to the window. Dawn was coming from the east, and now the Red Keep's bells join the swell of bell sounds ringing from the city. Sansa remembers how the bells rang for Robert, but this was a different kind of sound. Men were shouting the streets, cheering. It was Sir Dantos who brought her the word. He staggered through her open door, wrapped her in his flabby arms, and whirled her around and around the room, whooping so incoherently that Sansa understood not a word of it. He was as drunk as the hound had been, but at him it was a dancing, happy drunk. She was breathless and dizzy when he let her down. What is it? She clutched at her bedpost. What's happened? Tell me. It's done, done, done. The city is saved. Lord Stannis is dead. Lord Stannis is flat. No one knows. No one cares. It's almost just broken. The danger's done. Slot. Scattered, scattered, gone over, they say. Oh, oh, right, banners, though. The banners, Junk, will the banners. Do you, you have any wine around, maybe? We ought to drink to this day. Yeah, it means you're safe, don't you see? Sansa demands to know what happened, and Dantos reports that they came up through the ashes while this river was burning. The army came and attacked Stannis in the rear while he was on the river. Oh, to be a knight again, to have been part of it is... It's been very hardly fought, they say. Some, some ran, but more bent the knee and went over shouting for Lord Renly? What must have Stannis have thought when he heard that? I, I had it from Ozzy Kettleblank, who had it from Sir Osmond, but Sir Balin's back now, and his men say the same. Uh, uh, the gold cloaks. They, they say that too. We're, we're delivered. Sweetling, they, they, they came up the Rose Road along the riverbank, through all the fields. Stannis had burned. The ashes puffing up around their boots and turning all their armor gray. But oh, the banners must have been brave. Yeah? The golden rose and the golden lion and all the others, the Marbrand tree, the Rowan and Tarly's huntsmen, I think. And Redwine's grapes and Lady Oakleaf's uh, leaf. And all the Westermen, all the power of the High Garden, Cashley Rock, Lord Tywin himself, had the Setter and Mace Tyrell the left, but the Vanguard won the fight. They plunged through Stannis like a lance through a pumpkin, every man of them howling like some demon in steel. And do you know who led the Vanguard? Do you? Do you? Do you? Sansa, in one of the saddest moments, wonders if it was Rob, but no, it wasn't Rob. 
It was Lord Redley. Lord Redley in his great armor with his fire shipping off the golden antlers. Lord Redley with his tall spear in hand. They say he killed Sir Gyard Morrigan himself in single combat and like a dozen, thousand other knights as well. It was it was Redley. Redley. It was Redley. Oh, the banners, darling Sansa. Oh, to be a knight. Ah. <sighs> And that is a Clash of Kings, Sansa 7. I mean, take the voices away. What an amazing, thrilling chapter in A Song of Ice and Fire. This is just outstanding work by George. And, and I ask, is it a top five chapter in A Clash of Kings? Maybe. It's definitely a top five in Sansa's overall story. What did you think of this, of this chapter, sir? Well, I think top five synopsis, unquestionably, sir. That's what I think. The range of voices there, sir. <laughs> It's a, a Lawrence Olivier-level talent. I thought I was just going to be done moving by the singing until you went into an eerily accurate impression of Dantos Hollard. <laughs> Goddamn. HBO should have reached out to you. Who, who among us, you know, hasn't had that voice when you're like... Whomst among us. Indeed. Indeed, it's Two beers deep. Right. Yeah. Well Go done. Ahead. Well done, sir. Yeah, this is my, uh, my favorite Sansa chapter in the book, for sure. Previous Sansa chapters in A Clash of Kings felt like being confined in a little box, which is appropriate, given her situation. Sansa 7 feels ragged and wild by comparison. Everything that was restrained or suggested before is unleashed in a torrent of emotion. Every extreme is represented, the threat of hellish violence contrasted with heavenly deliverance. It's an unpredictable chapter in which every decision is within a hair's breadth of going the other way. It's one of those chapters where at the end you realize you have been holding your breath all along and you have to just let it out in a big shudder definitely feel that and it's it's a great unpredictability which is fed through multiple reversals i mean that's what george does so well in heightening the tension for this chapter the lannisters at the start of the chapter they've lost the battle as far as they know sansa's life is in danger but wait cersei flees the room without ordering ill and pain to deliver the to deliver the killing blow so now sansa is, is safe for the moment she should really go to her room where it's it's even safer uh oh sander Clegane is there and he's holding a knife but he hasn't come to kill sansa Maybe. He just wants her to come with him north, but she refuses. Now her life is in danger again, but she sings her way out of it, and Senator Clegane leaves. Then the bells start. But these are not the bells that Sansa remembers from the death of Robert Baratheon, the ones that signaled the death of a king. No, it's another reversal. This one from the outs of the chapter. The Lannisters have actually won. Hooray? No. Through this literary device, though, George creates tension and mood for this chapter, letting readers live vicariously through Sansa, using her limited information, of course, her limited point of view, to, to illustrate this shifting danger and the rising, falling action of the chapter. And I think also, too, to make us feel, you know, a little bit unsafe about Sansa, what is actually going to be the outcome of this chapter? What is the outcome of Sansa Stark for the first time reader? And I think George does this really, really well. This is a great, fabulous chapter in A Song of Ice and Fire. Right from the start, he's playing with you what you know and what you're going to find out later. Coming off the chaos at the end of Tyrion 14, out on the burning bridge of boats, the first thing we learn in Sansa 7 is that the Lannisters appear to have lost the battle. This is perfect setup for a later twist. We'll spend the rest of the chapter assuming that the Lannisters have lost, only to be told at the very end that they won and are now more powerful than ever, actually. George is playing fair with us here. Tyrion caught a glimpse of fighting on the southern bank. Osney reminds us about that in this chapter, so it's not like George is pretending that an army was there when he didn't write them there. On reread, we know that that's the Tyrells, showing up to hit Stannis from behind with a folding chair. 
As a first-time reader, we don't have enough info to figure it out, any more than the Lannisters can in the moment. The fog of war has taken hold. All they know here on the North Bank is that Stannis' men are about to enter the city, which Tyrion said was game over. Once our walls are breached, we are lost. I've known that from the start. That's bad enough. But we also see how Cersei's leadership has made everything worse. Lancel lays out the consequences for her. Pulling Joffrey back ruins the shadow on the wall, and now the gold cloaks are fleeing Plato's cave en masse. In trying to preserve Joffrey's life, Cersei killed his legitimacy. His men saw him leaving and followed. Lancel's wound broke the mood in the room, as Sansa notes. The illusion of peace is giving way to the realities of war. Defeat is coming with fire and blood. Cersei's voice is calm. Her orders are precise, her movements swift. If you ignore what she's actually saying, it's, it might seem like she's taking charge. But if you pay attention to what she's actually saying, it's clear that Cersei's distant tone is that of someone emotionally detaching themselves from reality. One by one, she is unplugging her last connections. All she tells Lancel is, break the news to Tyrion. All she does in response is bar the door, abandoning the women who went to pray, and order Joffrey brought to her, repeating the same mistake that Lancel just explained to her. Even as Cersei asserts royal power, she abandons the system to burn, clinging to Joffrey no longer as the king, as Lancel says, but her son. Who knows what her plan is next? Murder-suicide, as with Tommen on the show? Regardless, Cersei has broken, every bit as much as Sandor. I think of real-world tyrants as they crumble, as Stephen Atwell in his essay on this chapter compared it to Hitler in the bunker, but also fantasy characters like Denethor, or more to the point, the Mad King. Madness, Lancel gasps, putting it all together, too late. Lancel stands in for every crony and flunky and toady who realizes all at once that their patrons were never in it for anyone but themselves. Lancel tries, one last time, to force Cersei, and by extension Joffrey, to act as legitimate authority figures, but she refuses and knocks him out of her way. This, right after demanding that Lancel help her as a Lannister, that they all stick together, and she literally sticks her fingers in his wound. Cersei doesn't even have the courage of her mostly awful convictions. There's no loyalty here at all. It's so bad for, for the Lancers that like they refuse to extend loyalty out. It's always what they are receiving, not, not their output. And that really like fucks them up in the long term, as, as we'll find out in A Feast for Crows. But I think it's even worse than the Lancers are not showing loyalty to the people that are their ostensible allies. I mean... Since the start of Tyrion's arc in A Clash of Kings, you pointed this out so well that the Lancers work as a almost like a mid-20th century American crime family as portrayed in American cinema throughout Clash. But, you know, what actually made those families so successful, both in cinema and also in, in reality and history? Partly, yeah, it's their use of violence when the chips were down, but also they had skin in the game. Sonny got shot on the freeway, after all, at the... Spoilers for the, for the Godfather, I guess, if you've never seen that. The Scallions of the Corleone family, Michael and Sonny, they exposed themselves to danger in fighting their post-war wars against the five families in New York City. And despite their underlings really doing most of the violence, which is also the case for the Lannisters, they still played their roles and actually fought. They used violence themselves. But Cersei is no Vito Corleone. When the ships are down, and truly, when are they more down for House Lannister than here on the Blackwater? She pulls her boy back from exposure to danger. It ain't rational, and I don't think George wants us to come away thinking that Cersei is 
less for not thinking about the politics of becoming a mom again. Instead, Cersei is acting both rationally and irrationally. She wants her son removed from the danger, and yet she has to know that pulling Joffrey back makes him and her less safe ultimately. But Cersei is all like, fuck the shadow on a wall here. She's done with politics. She's done with all the pretensions that she's been pretending at her entire life. This shit is over, and she simply doesn't care if anyone is going to suffer as she knows she's about to die. Yet Lancel is saying it ain't over yet, but it absolutely will be if Cersei carries through with pulling Joffrey back. If Joffrey's not fighting for his own cause, why should anyone else sacrifice their own lives on his behalf? If Joffrey is pulled from the battlefield, everyone fighting for him is going to run too, and the cause will be totally fucked, not just most likely to be fucked. The question I ask is, what's the difference between certainly fucked and almost certainly fucked? <laughs> well, quite a lot, actually. You know, the Lannisters are almost certainly fucked, at least insofar as the information that Cersei has at chapter start. That means there's still hope. A fool's hope, as Gandalf will say in Return of the King. And if there's a flicker of hope, the Stark Bannermen will march through a frozen hell to, in order to, to satisfy that hope, as, as we see in A Dance with Dragons. But the Lannisters, and, and George loves, loves his football, so here's the analogy here. But the Lannisters have to be the Brady-era New England Patriots for any of their fans to give a shit about the season. They have to, be overwhelming, they have, to have overwhelming odds in their favor, or they're giving up. They're taking their ball and going home. In giving up, though, Cersei isn't just damning herself and Joffrey, she's damning a whole lot of other people, like all the people in her court and Magers hold fast. But she doesn't care. She can't view a world outside of the one she and her mirror images, her sons and daughter and Jaime, live in. When Cersei still had a glimmer of hope back in Sansa 6, she talked about what she could do to preserve the women from her court from rape and murder if another man besides Stannis showed up at the dry moat at Magers hold fast. But now, when that might actually be the case, when Stannis might be the one showing up outside of Mager's Holdfast, she's beating feet out of here. Every man and woman for themselves. You had cited Denethor here before, and being me, I've been reading through uh, Lord of the Rings, so this is kind of fresh in my mind, because Cersei very much resembles Denethor. I think that George is making an intentional paralleling here with what Denethor says from Return of the King. Farewell, Peregrine, son of Paladin. Your service has been short, and now it is drawing to an end. I release you from the little that remains. Go now and die in what way seems best to you. And with whom you will, even that friend whose folly brought you this death. Send for servants and then go. Farewell. It's a chilling moment when you realize that the only way the leader can perceive of you being free from them is for you to die. Like that's what freedom from my service means. That's the only way you'll be released is if it's all over. So you just may as well die. And mm -hmm. I don't care how. And in the wake of that, uh, the fear spreads. Power abhors a vacuum, and with Cersei gone, there's no one to believe in. The status quo is shaking apart. Sansa steps forward, instinctively, like Tyrion pulling back. In both cases, they think, oh, I don't even know why I'm doing this. It's a subconscious change. She has to do what Cersei believed she couldn't, what Cersei herself failed to do. Keep the people in this room together, despite the worst. Sansa does so by lying to them. It's the only tool she has. Because of her age, gender, and status as prisoner, she cannot affect material reality. She carefully shares only the details that make it look like Cersei has things under control. She's raised the drawbridge. There are walls and moats. She tells them that Joffrey's not hurt and that the men are fighting bravely. When she runs out of courtesies, she turns to Moonboy for help. Not a knight, but a fool. Make us laugh. I think this is George self-consciously reflecting on the role of entertainment as a diversion from horrible things. 
many times in A Song of Ice and Fire, especially in Sansa's story. The uh, songs are framed as the shallow lies that paper over the, the ugly reality. But I think the overall perspective, and I think it's captured here, is, is, is more bittersweet. It's we need those lies to keep hope alive. It's a great comedy from the 40s, uh, Sullivan's Travels about a pretentious screenwriter who wants to go, you know, he wants to tell a story that's real and important and political and from the people. And then he goes out and lives like an actual hard working class life. And then he can, and he, he goes to people who have are really down their luck. He goes with prisoners to a movie theater and sees them just laughing and enjoying themselves at a light comedy. And he goes back uh, to his work, like given new vigor because he knows like, oh, we really need those kinds of diverting, you know, like moon boy dancing. Or we need those kind of stories because life is often terrible. And so we need those as just to keep the room together. This is Sansa's entry onto the political stage in her own right, and it's intimately tied to the kind of stories she used to be uncritically in love with. She has now learned through bitter experience how that kind of rhetorical twisting works on the political level, so she can make use of it herself. And unlike cynical politicians like Littlefinger, she uses her powers of persuasion for good, a lie told with honor, preserving peace in the room. It half works. Which feels about right. One serving man helps her with Lancel. The other just looks at her and runs off. And that's a balance between idealism and realism. The same is true of how Sansa thinks about Lancel. He's one of her enemies, keeping her captive. Yet she can't seem to wish him harm. She considers herself weak for that, adopting Cersei's mindset. But I think it takes strength to understand that while Lancel has committed some sinister deeds himself... He is ultimately a hapless patsy who in this moment is in need of mercy. This distinction is how Sansa will be able to act effectively in politics without losing her soul in the process, which so few people are able to do. That's beautifully said. I mean, Sansa has to understand the distinction between the true bads and the people who are looking to live on another day, Cersei and Lancel, so to speak. Because because I think this distinction will be vital in The Winds of Winter and especially A Dream of Spring, S Sansa has to distinguish between characters like Littlefinger and Robert Aaron there. Littlefinger is a true evil Machiavellian, someone who is planning to use Sansa to ride high onto power in both the Vale and the North, all the while, all the while having designs on Sansa that George has described as alternating between fatherly and seeing her as an idealized version of young Catelyn. Robert might be an annoying kid who was, in, who was enabled to be that annoying kid, as we saw in Tyrion's earlier chapters and in Sansa's chapters in The Storm of Swords, but all that enabling is being done by Lysa and her own traumas and behaviors. But he reminds me a bit of Lancel here, helpless and a tool of the elite rather than a really villainous individual like Littlefinger or Cersei. Now, Game of Thrones has Sweet Robin surviving to the end with not a lot in the way of explanation on why Littlefinger or Bronze Yon don't simply kill the annoying kid or just leave him at an inn somewhere to be taken care of. <clears throat> the clue for why Sweet Robin lives on might be found in a Sansa who offers comfort and help to Lancel instead of kills him by neglect. Sansa is putting her words from Sansa 6 to effect here. When I am queen, I will make them love me. Sure, she's not in an actual queenship position here in Maegar's Hold Fast, but she makes herself worthy of love by offering comfort and help to an enemy. Sansa is taking Robert Baratheon's one true virtue, his only, really, I think, his only real virtue, a step further. Robert was magnanimous for, to former foes. He feasted Lords Cafford and Grandison after the defeat at Summerhall, and she's taking that one step farther. Where Robert would feast former friends who had bent the knee, love in exchange for fealty, so to speak, Sansa offers unconditional love to an enemy. 
Because I'm also reading the Bible these days, it's almost Christ-like. While we were yet sinners or enemies of God, Christ died for us care that Sansa is offering to Lancel Lannister. But before that, Sansa demonstrates a shrewd understanding of politics that eludes Cersei. As we were saying in Sansa 6, Cersei does the bare minimum, the show of care by including these noble women in her court while doing fuck all else to, to, to kind of reassure them of that things are going to be okay. Yet when the situation truly appears dire, Cersei flees and leaves everyone to their fates and fears. That's not what Sansa does here whatsoever. She proves her royal virtue by reassuring the women that not everything is lost. They need to maintain hope. Now, certainly Sansa selectively shades the truth to offer a rosy scenario which doesn't reflect the received objective reality and truth that she heard from Lancel. But what good does go and die your own way do for these women? What value does it serve them to die terrified? Ironically, if Ironically, Sansa is correct. It's not totally lost. Stannis has lost the battle, probably around the point that Lancel has arrived at Mager's Holdfast. I wonder if this will be something that George will repeat beat come a dream of spring when Sansa hosts her own gathering of non-combatants at Winterfell when the others besiege the castle. As much as Stannis is supposed to remind us of the others in some ways, with his ostensible non-mercy and the stranger come to judge them, as Sansa pointed out, he's not quite the complete and dire threat to all human life that the others are. That's their role in A Song of Ice and Fire, as we talked about in our most recent Patreon episode, revisiting the Game of Thrones prologue. They're kind of like the Black Plague, the haunted house mirror of what the nobles do to the small folk in Westeros. Now, things will grow quite dire when the others breach the wall, come south and lay siege to the place where winter last fell, but it will be up to Sansa to actively reassure those who are not out on the battlefield to stay true, that Jon Stark, Daenerys Targaryen, Jaime Lannister, Brienne of Tarth, Podrick Payne, random soldier from Runestone Castle Number 7 <laughs> are fighting bravely, that the two walls of Winterfell will hold back the tide of death coming for them. Maybe. I'm, I'm, I, I'm not writing a Dream of Spring, obviously. Obviously. That, that giving it to despair does nothing. That hope is worth living for, even if it's a fool's hope. I think that's exactly the emotional dynamic going on here. And as, as Sansa's struggling to make her way through it kind of instinctively in the face of horrible things, as with the, the characters in the, the prologue, as you were talking about. And even as Sansa asserts herself, her survival remains in question. Cersei brought this up in Sansa 6. What shield can she still rely on? Dantos tells her to bar herself in her room. Sansa's afraid that Illyn Payne might come for her, an omen of death, unlike his cousin Podrick, who saved Tyrion's life. She considers begging Dantos to defend her. He used to be a knight, after all. As soon as Sansa comes up with this idea, however, she dismisses it. Sansa is learning to look past surface realities. Dantos might compare himself to Florian the Fool, but he cannot, physically, defend her from Illyn Payne, who is, you know, quite the killer. To ask Dantos to do so would get him killed. Unlike Cersei, Sansa doesn't want to use people that way. The battle is a crucible for Sansa, even though she's not directly taking part. She is forced to mature just by dealing with the war in a more kind of downstream way. A man knocks her down on the stairs, escaping with stolen loot. You really get the sense that the Lannister regime is coming apart at the seams, everyone's just grabbing for what they can. Sansa enters her dark room and throws back the curtains. All the color outside comes screaming in at her. A Clash of Kings, as I've said many, many times, has been all about the rainbow, an infusion of color into the noirish black, white, and gray color palette of A Game of Thrones. And this is the ultimate example of that in Sansa's chapters. The brilliant colors are compared to tides and pools sweeping over the heavens, as though the river has been converted to fire and set loose upon the sky. The air smells burnt, as Sansa thinks. 
The texture of reality is on fire. As at the red grass field, it's awful yet beautiful. A tableau of wonder and terror. Yeah, it really is that. It's 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 such a it's such an eerie sight that you imagine Sansa is looking at in this in this moment. And this is one of those points where I wonder whether George is taking inspiration for what Sansa sees from modern warfare. So as, as much as the Vietnam War serves as inspiration for the Blackwater and war in general in A Song of Ice and Fire, I think what Sansa sees outside of her window reminds me of Desert Storm, the first of many American Gulf Wars from, from 1990, 1991. I, I remember this so strongly as a child. I was I was seven years old when, when the Gulf War kicked off, watching television newscasts of Baghdad under air attack. But unlike previous wars, war and night could be shown with a garish beauty with new camera technology. Because in early 1991, early versions of CNN night vision cameras captured the bombardment of Baghdad. I left a link for patrons who want to take a look at that in our show notes. Filtering ambient light to depict the horrible beauty of death and destruction in green garish light. There's something unnatural watching war through a sickly green filter. And I have to imagine that George may have been basing Sansa's watching experiences on his own watching experiences and watching the watching Desert Shield and Desert Storm in the early 1990s. This is no, the very air was green from Ariane's second winds of winter chapter as she journeys through the natural beauty of the rainwood. And yet there is something in our lizard brains which thrills and disquiets us when we imagine what Sansa is seeing. Unnatural fireballs created by wildfire bursting in the sky. I, I think George wants us to have both of these reactions to the Blackwater. But to emphasize the horror, he doesn't just make this simply a visual experience for Sansa. That's why George has Sansa smelling the burning air. Air, as, as far as I know, and I'm not, I'm not a scientist necessarily, but air is not supposed to fucking burn. As much as we had our debate on whether wildfire was justified on the battlefield, I think George is borrowing a leaf from Tolkien here, emphasizing that war is an affront to nature, that it corrupts and distorts nature. We've marred nature by burning the air and filling the night sky with light and fire, unnatural light and unnatural fire. George describes the reds and oranges of common flames as warring with the emeralds and jades of wildfire. That's politics versus magic, you could say. That's man versus nature. The combination births armies of short-lived shadows, like the shadows of Stannis at Storm's End. They, too, were born of fire. It's the cycle of omnipotence to transience that defines a lot of the story. Armies are born to vanish. Green dawns give way to orange dusks, as Sansa says. Ashes to ashes. Stannis's cause is literally going up in flames, yet his opponent, Tyrion, is also falling from power. The wildfire demon bursts into being and then vanishes. Valor Morghulis, and Maester Lewin said earlier in the book that gods die as well as men. Everything changes. All Sansa can do in the face of that is sleep and dream and wait for the sky to be blue again. Not so she'll be happy, but so she'll know if she is to live or die. She once again feels like she has lost all control over that. Sansa remembers her wolf, Lady, she says. The externalized symbol of her innocence, the uncomplicated belief in dreams. Lady is who she wanted to be. And now Sansa doesn't know who she is or who she can be in this world. Will I meet her again in death where it finally makes sense? She's staring into the grave. And then a hand reaches out of the grave and grabs her. It's a jump scare that sets the tone. This is the final Sans Sans scene, so far, and it heightens the contradictions of their dynamic to an intense degree. Has Sandor come to kill her? 
or to save her life? Does he think of himself as her noble chaste guardian or her potential lover? Can he even tell the difference? Sandor is in Sansa's bed, waiting for her like a lover. He says, little bird, I knew you'd come. A pet name coupled with sexual innuendo. The sky lights up with color behind him like a fireworks display. How romantic. But those are the fires of war. And far from standing in for Sandor's impassioned ardor for his lady love, they have reactivated his trauma. Sandor constructed the persona of the Hound to deal with the fear and anger resulting from what Gregor did to him. The wildfire took that away. That's why he's so bitter toward Tyrion specifically, wanting him to burn in the fire he unleashed. Sandor wants karmic justice. He's calling it down from the gods. If the gods are just, they'll do that to him. The repressed has returned, and he's been brought back to childhood when he believed in stories about gods and knights, and he faced the fire because of it. So he's acting out the script of knighthood to the extent that he remembers it. I want my song. Let me protect you. This is what the chivalric hero in the stories we both know would do. And there is something very moving about the hound persona cracking and Sandor telling Sansa that he can make it so that no one hurts her again. The problem is that Sandor bears the literal scars of conditioning. He can't just shake off a history of violence. He is aggressor as much as savior. He's drunk, so much so that he's not in control of himself. He recklessly violates Sansa's physical boundaries, leading up to threatening her with a knife. Right, and the, the part of the thing that's leading her him to threaten her with a knife is, is alcohol, that thing that Sander uses to escape the abuse he suffered at Gregor Clegane's hands as a child. Yet it's also a tool by which he inflicts abuse on Sansa here in previ- in pre- in, and in previous Sansa chapters. Sandra's not alone in that dynamic. Robert Baratheon would get drunk because he was sad about Lyanna, and that booze would fuel his rapes of Cersei and his physical abuse of her as well. Cersei, too, reaches for alcohol because of all of her trauma, and that becomes the tool by which she lashes out at Sansa and ends up threatening her with ill and pain. But in another sense, alcohol removes inhibitions and allows someone like Sandra to express himself, truly express himself. I think he, he truly, at some point, wants to save Sansa here, take her away from the oppressors in King's Landing, and take himself away from those same oppressors. But like you're saying, he's doing all this while holding a knife to her throat and threatening Sansa's life. In our conscious minds, we compartmentalize. We focus on one emotion or desire. But when drunk, compartmentalization becomes very difficult. And I think that's what Sandra Clegane is doing here. He can't compartmentalize between his desire to kill Sansa and his desire to save her at the same time. It all comes flowing out in one rush of a scene. I think that's exactly right. That's what we're seeing here. We're seeing the breaking down of the walls he was trying to keep between his fears and his desires. Even as Sandor reaches out to Sansa emotionally, he still instinctively scorns her appeals to courtesy, especially because he sees them as hypocritical. Sandor demands that Sansa look at his face, both as a sign of respect and as a way to recognize the horrors of life that her courtesies, in his mind, avoid. The intimacy of this scene is almost unbearable, because George is deliberately writing this as romance and as horror at the same time. And intimacy is something those genres have in common. Actually, I would argue those genres have a lot in common. The stories Sansa loves did involve an element of danger, a thrill of forbidden tension. That's why there's always ravishing outlaws and robber knights and such. The sexuality is unleashed and then symbolically restrained, as also happens in a lot of horror movies. George is addressing fantasy, the genre, but also the act of fantasizing. 
I think most people enjoy sexually, romantically, the illusion of the loss of control. That's what we mean when we say we were swept away by somebody. What most of us don't like is actually losing control. This scene between Sansa and Sandor shows us that the line between the pleasurable illusion of danger and the real thing can be very slippery. Sandor is an irrational, irreducible mixture of the heroes and villains from her stories, revealed as two sides of the same coin, the same face all along. What if the white-cloaked knight who wanted to spirit you away to safety was also the monster threatening you? Which is the real face? Which is the mask? Sansa doesn't know what Sandor wants from her, and he doesn't seem to know either. The war shrinks down to these two people, silhouettes against the flames. Sandor doesn't know which side lost the battle, he says. All he knows is that he lost. We each fight our own battle, and he lost his. Sansa has to work through her own fears to face him. Sandor is a source of fear, but also a way to get past it an agent of both chaos and liberation. The wildfire illuminates his face, black and green, the colors of the Battle of Blackwater, as they were the colors of Renly's death. So it's like the Baratheon knight outside who was in more pain than Tyrion knew when the wildfire revealed it. Is the same true of Sand, or is he in more pain than we know? Maribald says we should both pity and fear broken men. Sandor reeks of blood and vomit. Men are shrieking outside as they burn, and all of the hound wants is to play Florian and Jonquil. He wants a reason to keep living, to believe. And Sansa gives it to him. As thought betrays her, her heart gives voice to the same song she sang in the Sept as the battle began, come full circle. It's a pure plea for mercy. Sansa asks for an end to the cycle of violence that shaped him. Gentle our hearts, she sings, teach us a better way to be. Restore the harmony that we have torn asunder by meddling with the old powers of fire and blood. Sansa sings for mercy from Sandor, take the knife from my throat, but also mercy for Sandor from the gods. Let him want to take the knife away. Even as he threatens and terrifies her, she senses that he is suffering and needs help, as with Lancel earlier in the chapter. So shines a good deed in a weary world, a shaft of light in a literal dark room. Like a Christian martyr, like a beauty with her beast, Sansa reaches past the hound mask and touches Sandor in his heart. That's what George is attempting to communicate here with that thought of mercy and, and Sansa playing the role of asking mercy for herself, but also asking mercy for, for Sandor Clegane to to have him move, remove the knife from her from her throat, to remove the knife and the sword that he's held his entire life since he was 13 years old. As he told Sansa earlier, he killed his first man at the age of 13, likely during the sack of King's Landing. He's lived a life of violence. His entire life has been violence, and Sansa wants mercy to redeem him from that violence. You're mentioning Beauty and the Beast, and it's no coincidence, too, that when George was asked before A Song of Ice and Fire was adapted to Game of Thrones who he wanted to play Santa Clegane, he said Ron Perlman. Ron Perlman is a great actor, but why Ron Perlman specifically? Because he played the Beast in George R. R. Martin's reimagining of the Beauty and the Beast story set in 1980s New York City. Though, though George did cite Perlman's ability to act through prosthetics, I do think the larger reason was that George based the character of Santa Clegane 
on Vincent, who was the name of the actual beast in, in, that, in his own version of Beauty and the Beast. In George's writing of Vincent, the beast was both literate and savage. And that's Cedric Clegane having his moments of poetic splendor coupled with his brutality. He's the person that is threatening Sansa with a knife. And yet he's also the person that Arya will see at the very end of when we last, when we last see him in quotation marks in, in A Song of Ice and Fire, weeping and weeping because he's broken, he's lost. And he has this moment of mercy offered to him when he's probably never experienced it ever before in his entire life. It's an unabashedly romantic moment that gains its power from the atmosphere of violence. It feels like that much more of a miracle in context. In the middle of hell, Sansa appealed successfully to heaven. George writes this breakthrough as so fragile that it could shatter if he writes it too explicitly. He doesn't describe Sandor's tears as tears. He describes them as a wetness that was not blood. That's how intimate this is. That's how personal. You can't even quite describe it. And of course, as anyone who writes or loves melodramas will tell you, not quite describing something can make it all the more powerful. Mm-hmm. Sansa is, is cupping his face, not knowing why. Again, as she didn't know why she stepped forward to calm the women earlier. She's operating on impulse, sensing something she is not quite old enough to fully understand. The human heart in conflict with itself, captured perfectly here. Sansa has disarmed Sandor in multiple senses, robbed him of his persona like the wildfire did, but pushing him in a positive direction rather than a worse one. He's the the archetypal anti-hero being pushed beyond the bounds of his cynicism. So he leaves her there, walking out of her life as an act of mercy. It's the best thing he can do. It's his acknowledgement he can't return the gentleness, even as it moves him. He's like Ethan Edwards in The Searchers. He's left just outside the threshold of home. Sandor leaves behind his stained cloak, the symbol of his dream defiled, a totem to her for helping to partially restore it. She wears it to keep warm as the fires burn out. It's such a beautiful expression of tattered chivalry, which captures where Sansa is right now regarding the stories and songs in this in-between place that comes with growing up. And she keeps that white cloak with her as she progresses into her arc, as afraid as her friend Lady Gwyn from Radio Westeros outlined so well in her The Bloody Cloak Theory from back in 2015. In that analysis, Lady Gwyn traces Sansa's attire, how she has a large woolen cloak that she takes with her after Dantos rescues her. The theory proposes that this is Sanders' Kingsguard cloak that Sansa dyed green at some point after the Blackwater. The green and brown colors being the colors that San- that Sander Clegane was usually associated with prior to donning the Kingsguard white cloak. We also know that Sansa has dyed her clothing before. Remember how in A Game of Thrones, how Sansa dyed the white dress that had a citrus stain on it after Arya threw an orange at her? And that becomes her mourning cloak for Robert Baratheon as she dyes it black. Later in A Feast for Crows, Sansa thinks back to this moment from A Clash of Kings from the Blackwater, thinking... As Robert Aaron's lips touched her own, she found herself thinking of another kiss. She could still remember how it felt when his cruel mouth pressed down on her own. She had come to, he had come to Sansa in the darkness as green fire filled the sky. He took a song and a kiss and left me nothing but a bloody cloak. Now, as with all theories, we have to ask, why is this significant? What impact would this have if this was proved true? 
There's the idea that Sander has symbolically fastened his cloak to Sansa a la Westerosi marriage customs, as she later sees in A Storm of Swords. Sansa had dreamed of her wedding a thousand times, and always she had pictured of how her betrothed would stand behind her tall and strong, sweep the cloak of his protection over her shoulders, and tenderly kiss her cheek as he leaned forward to fasten the clasp. Now, in that context, it was Tyrion Lannister who was who she was looking at and having to realize that she was being married to someone she did not want to marry. But that symbolism, though, doesn't mean that Sansa and Sandor are married, though, at the same time, more that the symbolism exists herein, and that works within the chaotically violent, yet also romantic mood that George embeds into the scene. More than that, the cloak will serve as a symbol of protection for Sansa, that someone was willing to protect her and take her away from her oppression in King's Landing. If she actually kept Sandor's cloak, and, and I do think that Lady Gwyn makes a great case for why she did. It's a symbolic reminder that Sansa is worthy of protection, that innocent life is worth defending. Sansa may have stripped Sandor Clegane of his hound facade, but Sandor Clegane will still die for her. will never lie to Sansa. He'll look you straight in the face. I think it's a great way to think about this scene as a symbolic marriage. Danny said this is a wedding to about the birth of the dragons at the end of A Game of Thrones. So clearly George is interested, clearly interested in literal weddings as, as <laughs> big scenes to organize characters and events around, but also symbolic ones as well. All the violence and suffering outside seemed to reach a fever pitch with Sandor's knife at Sansa's throat and then recede as she sang. The fires burn out as he leaves and she slips into shock for a couple hours. The bells bring her back to life. She throws off the stained cloak and looks outside. Dawn glimmers on the horizon, and the people are cheering. Sansa remembers the bells tolling for Robert's death, but these ones are different. They seem to stand in for life, an ode to joy. We've gone through the looking glass in terms of tone, from hell to heaven, and that's reflected when her other not-a-knight staggers in. Throughout the book, Sandor Clegane and Dantos Hollard have been a matched pair in Sansa chapters. Her two not-quite-nightly guardians, <laughs> with one foot in the songs and one foot in harsh, disappointing realities. Dantos is the comedy mask. Sandor is the tragedy mask. Dantos is the absurd knight who became a fool and says only now he has found his courage. Sandor is the violent reflection of a world that bestows knightly oils upon monsters like his brother, decrying the values he used to believe in. Sansa describes Dantos as a happy sort of drunk, whereas Sandor was definitely the more traumatized kind. Sandor declared he would take her away from all this, and then Dantos comes to tell her, ah, you can stay in place. Sandor told her that all was lost. Dantos tells her that all is well. The battle is done, done, done. He's repeating everything. He's <laughs> dancing and practically singing his dialogue. Very much in contrast to Sandor and his blunt, brutal phrasing, where like every syllable felt like it came with pain. Hmm. It's as if by singing for mercy and calming the rage inside Sandor, Sansa has summoned a happy ending into existence. A deus ex machina born from her song to save the day. And it's now being reported to her by Sandor's other half. That's, that's awesomely said. I think like, yeah, it does work as like, oh, Sansa has actually done the thing. And now she's being rewarded for doing the good deed here in A Clash of Kings and at the, this, the, the, the climax of the Battle of the Blackwater. And speaking of the Battle of the Blackwater, you, you thought I couldn't bring the war shit into a Sansa chapter. Well, you guessed wrong. <laughs> Because here we are actually, this is actually 
probably the point where the, where the battle is, is, is ended. We're, we're going to hear more about the battle's conclusion in Sansa's final Clash of Kings chapters, more about it in Tyrion's final chapter in a Clash of Kings, and of course, more about it in A Storm of Swords. But Dante's Holler's version remains our best and not altogether trustworthy source on events at the end of the battle. Given that caveat that Dantos is very, very drunk, he talks like a drunk person would, anachronistically, excitedly, and all over the all over the place. So let's sift the chronology, if you want to call it that, of what Dantos Hollard is talking about, and kind of talk about the battle's conclusion from a military standpoint. As was covered in Tyrion 14, Tyrion sees that Stannis' army attempts to cross the Blackwater through the wreckage of, burning sh of, of a burning bridge of ships, using that as a makeshift bridge. Tyrion, Mandon, Balon, and the rest of the ragtag army successfully defeat those soldiers who end up on the north bank of the Blackwater, and the bridge of ships falls apart, more likely from the Catabal and Trebuchet rounds than anything Tyrion did. As Tyrion noted, one of the ships spins as one of the ships spins away, he sees fighting on the south bank of the Blackwater and is rather confused by that. That's where Dantos Holler takes over the narration. Let's again try to sequence this chronologically. As we learn from Catelyn Six, Catelyn Six chapter in Clash of Kings, Edmure successfully repelled the Lancers, some attempting to cross the fords, and Tywin was falling back to somewhere. As we'll find out from Brendan Tully in A Storm of Swords, Tyrell outriders linked up with Tywin's army southeast of the Red Fork River. From there, the Westermen and the Reachmen link up at Tumblr's Falls and float barges down the Blackwater. They disembark from the barges, and given how Dantos says that the army moved up the Rose Road, I guess they disembark somewhere close to where the Blackwater meets the Rose Road, a half-day's ride from Stannis' army into the Kingswood Forest. This being the same Kingswood Forest that both Tyrion's mountain clansmen and Stannis' army are burning to try and fuck with each other. All that smoke, that fire, along with the clangor of battle, provides the concealment for the Lannisters and the Tyrells as they move towards the main line of Stannis' army. And I say that intentionally, main line. Tyrion had ordered the clansmen to kill Stannis' outriders and scouts to blind Stannis about what's around them and what's to come. And Tyrion's plan seems to have worked, as Tywin and the Tyrells come... Phrasing, right up on Stannis' rear. Phrasing again, undetected. Tywin divides the armor thusly. Mace is on the left flank, probably using the Blackwater to handrail his movement east with Randall Tarley in the center and Tywin on the far right. Yeah, yeah, I see it, George. But Loras Tyrell takes charge of the vanguard along with his big bro, Garland Tyrell. Speaking of Garland Tyrell, he decides, or rather Littlefinger decides, on a brilliant bit of visual deception by having Garland Tyrell wear Renly's, Lord Renly's green armor. Why is this brilliant? Because most of these Stormlanders and Reachmen, now a part of Stannis' army, had been Renly's men until Renly, very mysteriously who did it, died peacefully in his tent and his lords and knights switched to Stannis' side right after. That means that many of these guys, the Knights of Summer that Catelyn observed in Catelyn 2, 3, and 4, were probably not super enthusiastic about Stannis. They had all signed up with Renly first before switching to Stannis. And now Renly arrives at the battlefield and headfucks the lot of them into thinking that, no, no, actually Renly is alive. He's here and he's fighting for the Lannisters now. In fact, from all that we can tell, it's the vanguard that does most of the fighting here, plunging through Stannis like a lance through a pumpkin, as Dantos Hollard says. And here we see the fatal conceit in Stannis' planning for the battle. He had to move quickly to take the city before Tywin could reach him and attack him. Stannis went all in on the attack and didn't do the necessary work to fortify his position. Seemingly, as far as we can tell, he put up no stakes, no picket line that could slow down any force coming against him from outside of the city. I think, honestly, that's a real failure on Stannis' part because he had time to do this, goddammit. Recall how Stannis' army reached the south bank of the Blackwater days and weeks ahead of the navy committed by Emery Florent. 
What did Stannis do while waiting for the Navy to arrive? Well, they, they burned the Kingswood Forest to smoke out Tyrion's clansmen. We know that. And built rafts to cross all necessary work for the battle to come. But they failed to harden their defensive perimeter as a precaution to any attack coming from the outside by, say, Tywin Lannister. The result is that the Tyrell vanguard charges right into Stannis' main army as half of his men are trying to cross the Blackwater. Stannis' army breaks almost instantly with many of the former Renly loyalists throwing down their weapons and bending the knee to, to, to Renly. Garland Tyrell, same difference. Garland himself kills Sir Gaird Morgan in single combat and kills a dozen more knights, which I think is probably one of those drunken exaggerations by Dantas Hollard, which then probably encouraged more of Renly's former men to think it truly was Renly here. Or, more cynically, they knew they were about to die if they didn't surrender, and so they bent the knee thusly. The remainder of Stannis' army are killed by the vanguard or start running for the shores. And you'll find this oh so strange, but it's the Florence who are part of the rearguard of Stannis' army who aren't really taking part in any of the fighting, and they are the ones closest to Blackwater Bay. Somehow, and this might be a little bit of a stretch on George's part, but somehow Salador San is aware of the route just enough to bring his own rearguard ships to the shores to pick up Stannis' fleeing army. Amidst all of this, we do learn from Theon's Winds chapter that Justin Massey was the one who urged Stannis to advance backwards and make for the ships. This, of course, saves Stannis' life and his cause for the time being, but the cost to Stannis is enormous. In Storm, Davis will find out that Stannis has a mere 1,500 men with him on Dragonstone. Florent men chiefly. Awesome. That seems to be all that survived or didn't surrender to Renly at the Blackwater. 1,500 out of the 18,000 or so men that Stannis brought to the Blackwater. In Davos 3, Davos thought that they had won the battle, but the cost of this is he thought. That turned out not to be a victory, though. It was the start of the defeat, and the cost of this defeat is staggering for Stannis. As much as we cheer for him as he's in the north, as much as we cheer for him as, in some senses as he fights the wildlings and saves, saves Castle Black and the Night's Watch, Stannis Baratheon is never going to recover from this, and this ultimately will be part of his downfall. Very well said, sir, both in your outline of what is a very jumbled timeline and in your assessment of what losing the Battle of Blackwater does to Stannis' cause. He will never recover from this. Even when Davos revitalizes Stannis' flagging spirits at the end of A Storm of Swords, making for the North, practically speaking, means leaving the Iron Throne in the rearview mirror. With Jon's help, Stannis forges an alliance of convenience with some Northmen against the Boltons and Freys, but the plain facts are laid out at White Harbor, which Girls Gone Canon has been covering those chapters really well. Once vengeance is achieved, Stannis has nothing to offer the North. The Lannister regime is actually kind of crumbling in the South now at the end of A Dance with Dragons, but ironically, Stannis is no longer in position to take advantage of that. John Connington will instead, with a little help from Dorne, probably. This right here, this battle, this was as close as Stannis was ever going to get to the prize. And while he was a victim of bad luck and just timing in many ways, he also made mistakes, as you point out so well. When we see him again in A Storm of Swords, he is broodier than ever about it. <laughs> he has been defeated and replaced by the new Lannister-Tyrell alliance. As you were saying, George comically slow rolls the reveal of who exactly has shown up to save the day. He's after something else first. Even in a chapter full of ecstatically beautiful writing, Dantos's final monologue stands out. By delaying the actual plot reveal, George makes us focus on the language. It worships the image and dismantles it at the same time. 
Before Dantos tells us the names, Rowan, Tarly, Marbrand, Oakhart, he describes them as godlike heroes rising from the literal ashes. Imagine the banners, Sansa. Imagine how bright they must have been, like the dawn light on the horizon banishing the night. And yeah, even reading this passage for the bazillionth time, it made my heart beat faster, like I was young Sansa listening to a singer. It's that rousing, that unexpected and thrilling. It's a full cathartic release. And yet, Dantos is telling a story. It's a second-hand story made up of bits and pieces from the Kettleblacks, Balin Swan's men, the Gold Cloaks, etc. Dantos did not witness any of this himself. He keeps reminding us of that. Oh, to have been a part of it, the banners must have been bright. He doesn't know. The fact that Sansa has to keep his drunk ass focused on what happened calls attention to the inherently distorted nature of perception and hence of storytelling. At the heart of Dantos' narrative is Renly's Ghost, a brilliant gambit on the part of the Tyrells and Littlefinger, as well as an image that perfectly summarizes the major themes of A Clash of Kings. It is all farce, but it works anyway. That, George has been arguing in this book, is the core of politics, a projection of power, essentially fiction. The triumph of the Battle of the Blackwater, as it's being framed here, is not one of strategy. It's one of storytelling, war as shadow puppets. The Tyrells wanted this tale to grow in the telling. They're engaged in the same process as George, myth-making for an audience. They won the battle not by wiping out Stannis' forces en masse, but by breaking them, causing many to run and others to kneel. How did they pull that off? By sending in a vision of wonder and terror to lead the vanguard. Renly Baratheon returned from the dead. Green armor and golden antlers to take vengeance on his brother and those who joined him. It's about as potent a political narrative as you can imagine. And of course, it's total bullshit. That's not Renly, it's just his armor. Renly is still very much dead, his body in a hidden grave near Storm's End. But what does it matter when all there ever was to Renly was the armor, the antlers, the projection of a perfect king? Who needs the man himself? Renly certainly had his own political wiles, but the Tyrells were using him as an entry point into the royal court, and they do so even after his death. Renly's symbolism was so successful it outlived him, passing into the realm of legend. It's whatever you want it to be, need it to be, because power resides where men believe it resides. There is no thing in itself, only the artifice, the shadow on the wall perceived in passing. Sure, the ashes turned their armor gray, Dantos admits in passing. Sure, death bleaches out all the colors, as we will see in Tyrion's next chapter. But that only makes us all the more determined to project our fears and desires into the rainbow of light playing out in front of us. This applies to magic as well as politics, both halves of A Clash of Kings. Stannis told Davos at Storm's End that Melisandre saw a future in the flames in which Renly smashed Stannis' host beneath the walls of King's Landing. Stannis believed that Renly's death at Storm's End forestalled this potential future. But instead, he ironically brought it about because Melisandre didn't realize it was another man in Renly's armor. 
She watches the flickering shadows in the fire like we read stories, like Dantos passes on word of what someone else saw, and in every case, like the telephone game, distortion is inevitable. No one gets a clear, objective read on things, and yet despite our ignorance and arrogance, our actions are the instruments of destiny. So many people died in the Battle of Blackwater. Even the survivors will die one day. Dreams live forever. We love them because they are not real. Look at Dantos Hollard. The Mad King wiped out his family. Joffrey almost had him drowned in booze. Oh, to be a knight, he says, the final words of the chapter, as if he didn't live through the realities of being a knight. And yet here he is, singing and dancing like the world is exactly how it should be. A miracle like Sandor's mercy extended to Sansa in exchange for her song. It's the same reason Sansa turned to Moonboy, to distract them from the abyss. It's the same reason she wonders for a moment if it was Rob that saved them. That makes no sense. But it's what her heart desires most. That's the power of story. It regenerates itself, rising from our bodies like ghosts, revitalizing the old words, the old pictures, the puppets on strings looming over us once more. All we want is to believe. That's beautifully and wonderfully said. I mean, we, we cling to something familiar as a form of reassurance. Dantos clings to his knighthood. Sander is clinging to a childlike version of chivalry, as you put so well. Other people cling to the gods, each other sometimes as well. In Dantos' case, he is living the Blackwater vicariously through the valor and deeds of other knights. And I find that sad. Not not sad in like a, it's so sad, like you're just sad, but that genuinely sad. As we talked about with Sander, Dantos Hollard is drunk and he can't compartmentalize his feelings. And I wonder what Dantos would have thought the next morning when he woke up with a obvious terrible hangover. Would he have had the stirring images of knighthood he slurred his way through with Sansa still in his head? Would those images then intermix with the memories of Ares slaughtering his entire family at Duskendale? Would he then remember how his knighthood nearly got him killed with Joffrey at the start of A Clash of Kings? And I think about this from, from personal experience. I remember so strongly the, da the date of May 1st, 2011. You may or may not remember, recall it, but I do. It was the day that the Navy SEALs killed Osama bin Laden in Pakistan, and I remember the jubilation I felt in that moment, living vicariously through the deeds of other men. Now, for me, I had only been back in the United States for a few months at that point, and I got drunk, man. I got real fucking drunk. And a former soldier of mine I was in Afghanistan with started texting me. He was also drunk. And we basically played Dantos back and forth to each other. Like, did you hear what happened here? They flew in this way and they had these, these really cool helicopters. I know it's, it's super like fucking lame and I get it. But there was this feeling that this was the moment of what a true warrior was all about. Not the bullshit of boredom, the moments of sheer terror, developing con-ops for movement from one place in the city to the next place in the city, arguing with the Afghans about doing maintenance on their vehicles, getting blown up and shot at, having to fight with the Afghans about stealing fuel, you know... That stuff was all the bullshit that I experienced. But that night, I exulted just as Dantos does here. But the next morning, I woke up with a hangover. Yeah. And remembered the reality of my experience. I was unemployed and running out of money. I the, All the money I had saved from when I was deployed. And I was still dealing with a lot of trauma from my experiences in my day-to-day -day life. I, I do wonder if Dantos Holler had a similar experience the morning after the battle. And that I think he might be a microcosm for King's Landing as a whole, for Westeros. 
The reality in King's Landing is that this was a glorious night. The city is saved from Stannis. But the next day, the hangover arrives. Joffrey, killer of peasants, abuser of Sansa, the people that makes people fight to death, is still the king. And one of Westeros' greatest monsters is at his right hand now. The night is Renly and Loras, the glory of chivalry riding in to save the city. The day is Joffrey and Tywin Lannister. Oh, that's really well said, sir. That's exactly what's like. This is the moment of Lannister triumph, but the nature of who they are and what they're like is going to strip all of that away as we're going to see over the course of A Storm of Swords and A Feast for Crows. Mm-hmm. And speaking of which, that Lannister downfall going into foreshadowing and groundwork, Lancel's wound is only going to grow worse after the battle, almost killing him and contributing to his transformation into a, a zealot of the faith. And when we get to him in A Feast for Crows, he very much feels like he stands in for the Lannister cause, like he's getting skinny, he's almost dying, he's giving it all up. Like, that's how they feel, even though they won. He's like a ghost in armor, right? I mean, he's he's, he's essentially like kind of Renly-like in a, in a sense, like that hollow shell of, of the Lannisters, which is what they are in A Feast for Crows when, when we catch up with with them and with him specifically. And I, and I do think that Lancel was saved by Sansa. Lancel very well could have died here in, in, in Maker's Holdfast if Sansa True. hadn't stood up. And the consequences is that um, it's, it's not necessarily at the happy ending that, that Sansa is, is having here narratively, but... She, you know, he does, he, he becomes a force against the Lannisters, ultimately, as, as we find out in A Dance with Dragons, that he's one of the uh, the most devout, those those warrior knights the uh, that, that are part of the, the faith service that is actively aiding the the Lannisters. And as, as we talked about in one of our Tyrion episodes, I forget which Tyrion chapter, so many in A Clash of Kings, he might end up being the uh, the faith's champion in, in Cersei's upcoming trial by battle. So in that same vein, George reuses the dressing up in someone else's armor in a dance with dragons at the Battle of Astapor when the Astapori dress up someone in Cleon the Butcher's armor. Except this time, it actually is Cleon the Butcher. Unfortunately, he's quite dead as they, after the battle, they pop open his visor and discover the dead Cleon full of maggots and worms inside. It's it's just a great way that George expresses how power, like that shadow on a wall type of power that, that is so endemic throughout the series and what actually it means inside that inside you could be a shadow on the wall but you could also be full of you could be all full of death and full of maggots and worms it's the making the hollow suit of armor very literal and in one case there's what's you know in the case of renly's armor what's inside is a different person because they're just using him as an idea but then you get you get to dance and it's a lot darker it's just death just death waiting for you inside dance with dragons great book very dark very (laughs) very grim even by the standards of this series for sure Mm-hmm. So, this obviously is the climactic battle of A Clash of Kings. A Storm of Swords also has a climactic battle that unfolds over a handful of chapters, handful of John chapters at the wall. And at the end, it goes down a similar way. An unexpected cavalry charge, saving the besieged party at the last second. This could seem repetitive, but I think is interesting is that in Storm of Swords, Stannis is the one leading the cavalry charge against Mance, rather than the one being swept away. So it's like he switched roles. And one, one little detail I love in common is that, you know, Sansa, when she's wondering who has shown up, who is leading this cavalry charge, she thinks for a second, is it Rob? And John does kind of the same thing in Storm of Swords. When he sees Stannis' banners, he thinks for a second, oh, is it Robert? <laughs> so I like in both those cases, for a second, you're not, you're not sure who it is and who exactly has shown up to save the day, which I think is a great little tweak on the cavalry charge. So glorious, so heroic. But wait, who is that? Just laugh, imagining like Stannis' reaction to exactly. him showing up and 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 people like, "Hey, Robert's here at long last. Robert's come to save the day." It's just like, what do That's I the great do for Westeros? Yeah, it's even a- at even at his peak of heroism, when everyone is screaming his name, someone is still like, "Oh, good, Robert's here." Can't can't get away from it. Beyond <laughs> the wall, and he can't get away from it. It's great. 
it's 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 wonderful as well. And as as I'm probably gonna argue when we get to those Battle of the Wall chapters, I, I do think even though Stannis' cause is ultimately doomed and the Blackwater more than anything dooms his cause, he does learn from his mistakes here and he actually applies some of the same tactics that we see at, that that Tywin uses at, at the Battle of the Blackwater, uh, which is a t- I think a testament to, to Stannis's military acumen that he he is willing to understand, study, and then utilize the tactics of his enemy, especially since it proved effective against against him. I think that, that that's you know one of Stannis's good points is that that he learns effectively and from from his defeats. You know it's. Was it is a Victorian who talks about if, he, if a man doesn't have a defeat in his youth, you know, he will right. lose a war in his his adulthood or something like that. That's uh, that's definitely um, something that Stannis applies here at the Battle of the Blackwater. Or for sure, Battle he's he's pushed back on his heels, and the you know he 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 and Davos just managed to work their way to a better position. And yeah, he definitely um. Well, it's interesting because like he, we say he needed to be humbled. But one thing I'll talk about when we get to Storm of Swords I like is that George calls out that idea that Stannis just needed this as a setback. Melisandre says that. And then Davos thinks, oh, so my four sons were collateral damage for his character arc, yeah. were they? And I like yeah. that because that's like George saying, hey, don't, you know, don't, don't, don't succumb completely to thinking about everyone that way. They were just all, mm-hmm. you know, you need that setback. Like those are people lost. And that's George's, his, 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 his ethos coming through. So I love that. So, moving to our theory and discussion portion of the episode. Uh, coming back, you know, this is obviously, this is like the big scene for the Sansa and Sandor dynamic. Whatever you think about that dynamic, this is obviously the climactic scene of it. As I said earlier, this is the last time that they share a space in the books. Uh, Sansa thinks about Sandor a couple times going forward, and the impression we get from A Feast for Crows is that Sandor has been thinking and probably talking about Sansa when he's permitted to on the Quiet Isle, so they've clearly stuck in each other's minds, indicating that George probably is some, you know, he wants to bring them back together or he's interested in this relationship, and they do come back together in uh, Season 8 of the show. So I, I wanted to ask, coming back specifically after the show has ended... How do you feel about this this relationship? Like even apart from the question of the camps that have fought over it and how they've defined themselves. Like what what stands out to you about the Sansa and Sandor relationship now? Like I like I was saying during the episode proper, like I I found this reading of Sansa Seven from A Clash of Kings very very moving. Um, I, I thought the Sansa Sandor dynamic is something. In my first couple of reads of the series, I didn't really care about a whole lot. And the reason I didn't care about it is because I wanted to get to all the epic shit. You know, I wanted to get all to to the Battle of the Blackwater. Like, why the fuck is Sansa POV here? We should have another Tyrion chapter here that, that sums up the Battle <laughs> sure. of the Blackwater. Coming to this now as a man of my now in my late 30s, as very mature and and such, I, I really appreciate what, what George does in having Sansa be our, both our final eyes for the Battle of the Blackwater, but also having this chapter showcase a relationship to Sandor Clegane and, and Sansa's relationship to Sandor Clegane is is fraught with a lot of complexity, to put it mildly. And I, I think I think you're right that that you know it's something that continues forward in the Storm Swords and especially in the Feast for Crows, where we we do catch up with with Sandor Clegane at the Quiet Isle in, in incognito. And of course, Sansa, as I was talking about before, is still thinking about things like like Sandor's cloak. And another thing that comes up really specifically up from this chapter is is the so-called unkiss, which is that moment where Sansa mm-hmm. believes that Senator Clegane kissed her at the battle at in this chapter, when in fact he he didn't actually kiss her as as, as far as we as far as we know from from what Sansa's relating in this chapter itself. And George has indicated that is going to be important for the future of of the story. The, these are things that were not very not very well explored in Game of Thrones season eight. Again, we, we talked about this 
right before the episode came on, it, well, actually at the at the opening question of this episode, where I feel like the show was like very focused on getting to the endpoints without exploring all of the dynamics that they had played with throughout the series. So they did have the sand sand stuff in season one and season two of Game of Thrones. That was very apparent there. But by the time they were getting to season eight, they just were just kind of rushing towards the end. And that rush to finish, I think, left a lot of things feeling a little bit unsatisfying, especially this this sand sand dynamic. I, uh, as we talked about this with Chloe back when we did, uh, was it Sansa three or two where we did the, uh, the King's tourney with, with her, uh, that right, chapter, right. was it, a? Uh, we talked a lot about Sansan and, and I think Chloe's, um, analysis of Sansan, how it might play out in the books, I think is, is, is really, really good. So if you have the chance to please go back and listen to, to that episode and don't want to repeat a lot of the points that she was making there, but something that she said, I think is really stuck with me and that Sansa and Sandor's, the combination of their relationship is not going to be in some sort of, they get together romantically or sexually or something like that. It's most likely going to be something that I was talking about before in that what Sander does here is he expresses to Sansa that she is worthy of protection. And I think that is going to get its ultimate fulfillment in, in Sander doing something for Sansa, defending her from a character like like the Undead Mountain, as as people have, have theorized on. But ultimately, I think it's it's a kind of sacrificial type love and that the mercy that Sansa extends to Sander Clegane in this chapter will come around for good ultimately here. Because George, as much as he does have touches of cynicism throughout his storytelling, I think he is ultimately a romantic at heart. So I can imagine a scenario where Sander Clegane does save Sansa from Gregor Clegane or from the others or something like that and goes out, you know, dying heroically ultimately. I don't think what we saw at the end of season eight was Sander Clegane deciding like, fuck all that, I'm going to go kill my, kill the shit of my brother again. I think, don't think that's going to be something that's necessarily going to be the same thematic storytelling that George will do for the end of Sanders arc. I think a rather sacrificial, a sacrificing of himself, kind of similar to what we saw for Theon doing it for Bran at the end of season eight will be something that George is going to do in a dream of spring for Sander and Sansa's relationship because their, their relationship is not done yet. It has to have culmination. And I think as Caitlin has said so well in, in the chats, it's, it's agape love that has to get, get its fulfillment, that sacrifice of Sander for Sansa. And I think it'll be a, a beautiful moving moment when we get that in a dream of spring in a little while. So what do you, what do you feel about Sansa now after the conclusion of season eight? What do you think is going to be, George's way that he does that storytelling and how will it contrast with what Game of Thrones did for that story? I totally agree about the angle about it being a, a, a tragic sort of forbidden love that requires a sacrifice and it's tied up with violence. And and I, I, I have sympathy for the show in, the regard, in this regard as I do for a few other plot points because this is the kind of relationship that's way more interesting to set up than resolve. And I think, you know, it's it's the kind of artistic space you want to poke and you want to get into because it's so dangerous and because it combines emotions that you wouldn't think should safely go together. And because you can have really fragile, heartfelt moments inside, really scary, threatening ones. And isn't that compelling? And, you know, as and this is a real life tourism as well. That's that that can be a lot more intense and interesting than sitting around in daylight and deciding you know what you want to do with your 30s together like you know that's the everyone has to make that leap in some form or another in art as well as in life and so while i think there's a clear structural tragic beautiful ending to this relationship like the minutiae of what sansa and sandor will say to each other 
after that long time, I think you have to be a really deft hand at writing that scene. Yes. I think that's hard, more than the John Danny scenes, which, you know, I don't think were the best things in the show, but it's hard to mess <laughs> that up because it's like, yeah. here are two attractive, lonely people. Smooch. <laughs> Sansa and Sandor is riskier territory, but that, that yeah. can bring you more emotional rewards, as we see, I think, in the scene in The Clash of Kings. I do think that is sadly going to wrap us up for this Sansa chapter to Clash of Kings and even more sadly for the Battle of the Blackwater. But we do really appreciate all of you folks uh, listening to us and, and watching those, us, those of you who do that, uh, to check out our live streams every single week. So thank you. It, it means a lot to us. As always, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, Podbean, Spotify. Watch us on YouTube. Subscribe to us. Hit the like button. Hit the bell button, which alerts us, alerts you when we're going to do one of these these episodes. We really appreciate that. You can check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash notacastasoiaf. You can follow us on Twitter at notacastasoiaf or shoot us an email at notacastasoiaf at gmail.com. You can find me at Quentin on Twitter or at poorquentin.com. And you can find me at Brenda B. Fish on Twitter, Brenda B. Fish on Reddit, and my website is Wars and Politics, Vice and Fire.wordpress.com. We want to shout out and thank our High Lords and Ladies on Patreon Red Relu himself, who has renounced his allegiance to the Squishers, Lady of a Thousand Words, Septon Marybelt, the Shoeless Sage, Sister Winter, Lady of the Wolfswood, Nessie the Elusive, Warden of the Neck, Defender of the North, and Keeper of Secrets, Sir Thomas the Raven Knight, Lord of Blackwood, Sir Way, of course, Matt, Warden of the Sanguine Shore, Lord Sam Kay, Wisdom Benjicut, Alchemist of Setsum Quanta, Mage of the Arts of Bull and the Morgan, Tibbs the Great of House Catnapping, Lord J. Manderley, Baker of the Frey Pies, Septon Merrifull Head Affair, Lady Silverwing, Joe Snow, King of the Metro North and Protector of the Tri-State, Caboth the Unfrozen, Lord of the Bricks and Castle Crimson Light, Sir Keith of House Corbray, Wielder of Lady Forlorn, Lord Andrew, Warden of the Dubai Sands, Lord Young of the Ghostwoods, Lady Mirari, Wielder of Dark Sister, Slayer of Tinfoil, Sir Will of the Anarcho-Syndicalist Commune, Lord Clay, Sir Small Paul, Guardian of the Stonehaven, Defender of Dunatar Castle, Septon T-Bone, Refined Wrangler of Icy Arachnids, Lady Veronica, Caretaker, Thane at the Crossroads, Lady Danielle of House Lannister, Titanium Pirate, Lady Joan, Lady Ranger of the Frostfangs, Lady Amy Blackfire, Analyzer of Chinese Literature and Dismantler of the Patriarchy, Cindy of House Quo, of House Co, Princess of the Friendly Black Hotties in the Summer Isles, and Random, Fierce Protector of Cripples, Bastards, and Broken Things. Thank you so much to our High Lords and Ladies. Absolutely. Thank you folks so very much. And thank you every single month for your support. It means a lot to us. So join us next week for Clash of Kings Daenerys 5 in which George follows up his literary tour de force with Blackguard with, with Karth. Because, because why? Why, George? Why'd you do this, George? Why? He did it to you personally. <laughs> personally affronted me back in 1998 when he published exactly. Clash of Kings. Exactly. He had you in mind. He had you in mind. Uh, I was 14 years old at the time, and George was like, I know that kid. He sucks. Here's a Karth chapter, <laughs> Jeff. <laughs> That's going to be fun. <laughs>